I was just thinking about like the national anthem or saying the Pledge of Allegiance when you were a little kid. You stand up for things when you want to honor them, you know? And um, I just think there's something important and good and beautiful about standing and singing a song of praise to the Lord because He is deserving of honor. He's worthy of that. And I think it's so cool when you're at like a baseball game or whatever, you're in the second grade and you stand up and everybody rises. Now you don't get to sit down at this point. You're going to stand and you're going to take your hat off and you're going to honor this country. And in this thing, in this setting, in this church here, in this life we get to share together, that you all have chosen to come, not by gumption of the government or some tradition, but you have come here under your own free will to honor the Lord together. Dare I say, I'm honored to, to stand with you in this life and in this song and in the presence of this Lord. So can we just honor him this morning in prayer? Does that make sense? Let's just pray real quick. Lord, uh, we do. We stand and we honor you. We give you tribute this morning. We exalt you high because that is the place where you are rightfully to be. God, we pray this morning that not only we would exalt you and honor you in this church by standing and singing and raising our hands or whatever, but Lord, we would exalt you and honor you by the way we stand for the truth and the gospel of our everyday life. Lord, I pray that there is not a gumption or some false stigmatism or some energy that's produced by today's service. Rather, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be the wind in our sails and lead us to honor you all the days of our life. We pray these things and believe these things because of your son who honored you in the, in the greatest and highest way, exalted on the cross, brought low so that we could be brought up. And thank you for that, Lord. And in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said amen and a amen. You guys can be seated. Thanks so much for coming today. I need your help. Um, typically, when I, when I speak at churches, I like the handheld microphone. Just because if I have to like, or whatever, it's not right in everybody's face. Uh, but for whatever reason, when I put this microphone on my chin, I get this like black mark right here. And I don't know if it's vanity or what, but can, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me? Is this okay? Are we good here? Promise? Okay, so I'm going to be here. And if you can't hear me because I start to do this thing, just give, give me this symbol. Like, hey, man, put it up. Okay? That was unprofessional, but I did it. Okay. <laughs> uh, we want to welcome those of you today that are visitors, maybe coming for the first time, or if you haven't been here in a while. Uh, maybe you're wondering about what eesis means, kind of a funky word. Uh, eesis is the word healing in Greek. It's the third derivative of the word. It means restoration. Essentially, we get better restored by fellowshipping with Christ. And that's not our hope or our ambition. That is a statement of fact, of truth. And we hope today, in some small or large way, you are restored. Uh, not by some sermon from this guy. <laughs> no, rather that, that the Lord would move in your, in your life in a personal and intimate way and that we would all be restored together individually. Does that make sense? And in here at ESIS, the Restoration Church, I hope, 
Uh, we're studying the book of Romans. We go line by line and verse by verse through the scripture. If you haven't been here before and you're thinking, well, you're in chapter 7, what have I missed? It's too much. Don't, don't worry about that. Essentially what's happening, Paul is the author of the book of Romans or the letter of Romans. He's writing from a city called Corinth to the Romans in about 67 AD. Essentially, what the book of Romans is, is the greatest theological essay ever derived. Paul is making a case of what I call the mechanics of faith. The Christian life is, it seems like a complicated, difficult thing. Everybody has their own strategy, their own belief, whatever. What Paul is doing is saying, if you want to take the true Christian life and open up the hood, what would be underneath there? What mechanisms would you find, and how would they function. Paul, throughout this letter, is basically describing what he calls my gospel to this church in Rome that is abundant and fruitful, but has mixed theology. They brought in some of their old way of thinking along with this new faith in Christ. Who here has ever done something like that? I became a Christian when I was about 19 or 20 years old. My whole life was transformed, but when I looked in the mirror, everything about me was still the same. I look a lot like my dad. My dad's sitting here today. I still look like my dad. I thought, the Bible says I'm supposed to look like Jesus. I don't know if I'm doing a good job. No offense. Anyway. The point is that I brought some of my old life into this new life. And throughout my maturity in Christ, and because of those faithful to the word, the word itself, the local church, the body, you need to know you need to be connected to a body. You're never going to grow in Christ if you don't have a church. You know why? Other people around me taught me, helped me uh, with my own Christian maturity in faith. And guess what? I got to help them as well. It's an abundant, great, really great thing. Through the faithful people in the body, the, my relationship with the Lord himself and the word of God, uh, the separation of who I was and who I am begin to uh, distinguish themselves. Not who I was in like, I'm not belonging to my family anymore and I didn't go to high school and I'm a total new <laughs> Nothing like that. The sin that plagued me is no longer attached to me because I became aware that I was sinning. And in this letter, in the seventh chapter, in the seventh verse, this is exactly what Paul begins to talk about. The trouble with sin. I want to really, before I go any further, we are going to have a potluck after. You should all come. Uh, don't worry about food. If you didn't bring anything, they knew I was going to be there, so they brought a lot. Okay, so just right after this, just, just come and hang out. My announcement is done for all that have cooked. Now, you're welcome. Okay, so the, the today's message is called The Trouble with Assumptions. The study of the purpose of the law and what we know that just ain't so. There are many things in our life that we think we know to be sure, and in fact, they're not real at all. We've made assumptions about them. What I'd like to do... Uh, for just a second here, is tell you a story. Uh, I believe that I have to tell this story to, to rightly illustrate what the scripture that we're about to talk about uh, is, is trying to communicate. In 1963, that's actually the year my dad was born. Okay, I promise I'm done talking about you. <laughs> a lot was happening in this country. The Vietnam War was about halfway over. But in the States, specifically in the South, an entirely different war was going on. 
or for civil rights. And if the South was the battlefield for the civil rights war, if you will, Birmingham was Baghdad. Birmingham is about 150 miles northwest of Tuscaloosa. And if you take the center of the state, Birmingham, Alabama, it drives just on the upper half, right in the midline of the state. Birmingham was a very traditional small town. It's large today. Uh, back then it was a steel company. And on the south side of town there was a large hill where the white people who had money stayed. And at the bottom of the hill is where the African-American black laborers lived. And in late spring, as the heat was starting to drive, so was the tension amongst, amongst the racial war in the area. Martin Luther King, an activist that we all know, had a plan. And he had a plan to take the war right to the away court, if you will, in Birmingham. He did this in a myriad of ways. He had sit-ins. He started uh, boycotts. And finally, on May 3rd, 1963, they planned a march around the city. The point of this march was not to be violent in any way, but rather to be irresistible to look away from. They were going to be seen. It was called Project C, C standing for confrontation. And the hope of Martin Luther King was that the chief of police, this is literally his name, Bull Connor, that is a name for a chief, Bull Connor would do something so outlandish, so dramatic, that it would be seen by the world and change the tide for civil liberty in the area at the time. In the midst of this march, the crowds develop, the tension develops, the police come, and this picture is taken. It's a striking image. The next day, the New York Times put this picture on the upper fold of the newspaper, spanning across three columns, and the world was outraged. Exactly what Martin Luther King wanted to happen, happened. President Kennedy quoted about it in disgust. Editorials were written, debates were had in the news. It was like, for the first time, the entire country was talking about the same issue from the same perspective. Congress, being appalled, took a vote a year later and passed the Civil Rights Act into law. Many people say that the Civil Rights Act was written in Birmingham. Many of you that are a little older, I'm sure that you've seen this image, yes? This was the staple picture of racism in America at the time. It shows this cop, the strong arm of the law, abusing his power on a teenage soldier just trying to get his own rights. It's a powerful picture, isn't it? The problem is, none of it's true. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to put that story on hold for just a second. Remember, this, today's sermon is not about this story or this picture. It's about the scripture. And I hope that this story helps uplift the scripture. Okay, so before we go any farther in this story, let's jump into the word. We're in Romans chapter 7, where Paul is speaking to this church who has a ton of Jewish believers in it who have taken their old way of legal thinking into their newfound faith in Christ. If you don't have a Bible, the scripture will be up here on the screen. And if you do have one, let's turn to Romans chapter 7. 
and verse 7. Paul says this, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Verse 8, But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from law, sin is dead. He goes on in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was the result in life, proved, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. 11 and 12, for sin taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Final verse. I know it's hot. Stick with me. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. At this church, we believe that there are three essential characteristics to the development of the Christian in his daily walk. That is, personal faith in Jesus, having a relationship with God. The second is the Word of God. And the third is the church, the brethren, the community, together. These three legs of the stool, if you will, is the recipe that God has used through the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and His bride to create us from newness of life to become mature. How mature, you might ask? The Bible says, to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. Maybe you could say it like this. Relationship with God, deep study and understanding of the Word with the help of the Holy Spirit, and the body of Christ, the church, coming together will make you more like Jesus. If you live by faith, you'll start to act by, like God. Does that make sense? And I think that that's important for the world that we live in. That being said, here at ESS, we go through the scripture line by line. It's important that we don't skip over any verses, for they all have life or something to give to us. This may seem like a Bible study at first, but I hope that there is some truth that helps you mature through this word. And then we're going to go back and see what the Lord wants to apply today. Sound good? Okay, jump back up to verse 7. Let's see what we can find. Paul is asking a question to the Jewish people. He's predicting this question is being asked. It, it, for example, as this letter is being read to a church, he is imagining as he's writing it that some of the Jewish believers are kind of starting to squirm in their seat. Thinking to themselves, Paul is continually saying that we come to faith by, or we come to Christ by faith. Then he's saying that we do good things by faith. Then he is saying that we're free from the law, that the law is a slave master. And if you're a former Jew in the, in the, in the room, you're thinking to yourself, so Paul, are you saying that the law, the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Covenant, the, the very thing we've studied our entire life, the, the way by which we believe you can be righteous is evil? You're saying that the law is sin? It would ruin these guys. Paul, predicting that this question would be asked, jumps ahead of it and says this. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. 
That word is mega gietha, may it never be, is mega gietha in the Greek. It literally means God forbid. Don't ever let yourself think that way. And then he says, it's contrary. The word contrary in the Greek here is literally opposite. Is the law sin? No, it's the opposite. What is the opposite of sin, you might ask? Holiness. In fact, Paul goes on to say that the law is good and righteous and holy in verse 12. He's trying to comfort these Jews. And he goes on further using the word, I would. You see that there? Again, every word matters. I would. Paul is a guy who's not afraid to throw out some analogies, man. He will just sling them at you one after the other, after the other, after the other. But in this case, dealing with people that he knows very well, being a Jew himself, he says, I would. Personal testimony. I would not have come to no sin except through the law. Let me give you an example. You're walking down the street. You see a nice, wonderful patch of grass. It's well shaded, and you think to yourself, I'm going to rest on that grass. This is something I would never do. But if you're that kind of a person, one of those like feet in the grass type folks, you would lay down on that grass, and you would take a good nap for yourself. Let's say the next day you were walking down the same road, getting excited for that patch of grass. Thinking, man, I'm going to go lay on that patch of grass. And as you approach the grass, there is now a sign hammered in to the grass that says, do not touch this grass or you will be fined. Were you aware that it was against the law of the owner of that grass that, to lay on it before the sign was there? No! You had no guilt when you laid down. You thought, this is a nice piece of land. I'm going to lay my head here. Paul is saying it's not sin, for he would not have come to know that he was sinner, was a sinner except through the law. And then he goes on to say, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. The Jewish law is summarized essentially like this. Those of you that really know the Jewish law, you understand how hard this is to summarize. The Ten Commandments are then broken down into many, many, many small subcategories. Some of them in the Jewish law are like really vague, vast laws. I spent my week at Starbucks reading through all of the laws. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a nerd. Some of them are very detailed and specific, like the weight of a chicken that you can hold on the Sabbath, things like that. Essentially, it's narrowed itself down to the Jewish law being 613 statutes. And it was believed that if you behaved and obeyed upon these statutes, you were then seen as righteous to God. The truth is, that is never going to happen. Because there is nothing in our flesh, there's no amount of works we can do to be considered righteous to God. But what's interesting to me is that Paul chose that of all of the 613 different laws that the Jews would know about sitting in the pews, he decides to bring coveting to the forefront. I believe this is done for two essential purposes, and I think it's helpful for you and I today. So if you have a pen, write this down. The first reason Paul is believed to have used coveting is that it is a commandment. We're talking about going after the law, and now we're talking about going after the heart of the law, the Ten Commandments. Many Christians today say to me, well, Beck, I'm a college student, I'm a Christian, but I have to obey the Ten Commandments. I want to say to them, good luck. Have, just try your best, because you're not going to be able to. For it is not by our power that we would ever obey these things, for we are inherently sinful. And the response may be, well, Beck, I have the Holy Spirit now. He will help me obey these commandments. 
No, the Spirit will obey them commandments through you if you will let Him. This is the principle of yielding to Christ. That He is the only one that can do this good work. You're wondering to yourself, I'm bashing my head against the wall trying to do everything that God asked me to do. And so what do we do? We just hope we do more good things than bad things. We live our life in faith like this. Oh man, I hope I didn't mess up. But a God who cannot fail has given himself to us that if we would receive him into our heart, we would have a transformation. The old man would pass away. Behold, the new would come and the new thing can't help but obey the law perfectly. Paul takes this covenant, the Ten Commandments, and he attacks it right at the very heart. The second thing is that coveting is an internal act. How do I measure if somebody else is coveting? That word literally is translated to lust or desire, seek after. How do I measure coveting? When Paul became aware that coveting was sin, he was walking around saying, am I coveting that? What about now? Am I, how do I, how much sin am I in? See, the idea of this law being something we can take care of on the outside of our body and be considered righteous is debunked right by this very commandment. Because coveting is an inside thing. There's a man who approaches Jesus, and he's called the rich young ruler. I hate that title for him. He's really the poor young slave in my mind. But he approaches Jesus on the road, and he says to him, Jesus, he calls him good teacher. He says he wants a blessing. He wants to follow him. He wants, he wants to know what he can do to inherit eternal life. And the Lord says to him, essentially, have you, you know the law. Obey it. And he says this, I've obeyed the law from my youth. How could you possibly say that to Jesus himself? The rich young ruler believed, I've done everything the law told me to do externally with my body with obeying these things. But the truth is, righteousness is a matter of the heart. Paul, or, uh, uh, Jesus then says to them, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go give away everything you own, give it to the poor, and then he tells them he loves them, you can come and follow me, which is a request he's only given to thir or 12 other people on the earth at that point, the disciples. And what's the man do? He walks away with his head down in sadness because he knew he could not give it away because it wasn't a matter of something on the outside. The condition was with his heart. Coveting is a matter of the heart. Jesus says in Matthew 25, if any man looketh upon a woman and, um, and, and lustfully, he has committed adultery in his heart. Nobody would know that he committed adultery, but he has. I think I've beaten that point to the ground enough. The application for us is this. That holiness is not a matter of our actions, of how much money we give, of how many good things we do, of the balancing act between our sin and our righteousness. That is all flawed. Holiness comes from God alone who makes place in our heart. And through that, what's in us starts to, in essence, spew out of us, and we do the very things that Jesus would do if he was walking on the planet today. Does that make sense? Um, one final note here. We do not know the depth of our sin until we understand the depth of the law. We're not sure about how far away we are until we become aware of what the law says. We didn't know we were sinning when we were laying on the grass until the sign presented itself. Okay. 
Yeah, I like that. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Sorry, I have so much I want to say, and I have to kind of trim it down. Verse 8, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. This scripture is best described um, if we consider it kind of in an, in an allegory. Let's pretend for a second that you are casting a play, and, then, and one of the characters in the play is titled Sin. Think of him as a person. But sin, this person, took opportunity through the commandment and produced in me coveting of every, time, of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is, is dead. Is the law evil? No, it was a tool that was misused by this character called sin. A hammer is not a bad thing, is it? It's a tool. But if I take that hammer and I bash you on the hand with it, what have I done to the hammer? Is the hammer evil? Is it sinful? No, it is what was done with the hammer that caused you pain and destruction. Sin took an opportunity through the commandment, this in this case coveting, and produced in Paul coveting of every kind. Just waylaid him. For apart from the law... Sin is dead. Sin is not known. Sin is absent. I'm not aware of any sin that I have if I don't understand the law. Does that make sense? There's a concept in biblical Christianity called grace. It's basically summarized like this. A gift that you get that you do not deserve. God gave us grace. Grace is a hard concept to like wrap our head around. <laughs> Many people have said that you can spend your entire life learning about grace, and as soon as you think you have it figured out, the Lord does something or shows you something in the Word, and you think, man, I don't understand grace at all. I think one of the things for you to consider as the Bible study believer is to consider where we are from grace by understanding our depravity. When we realize how far we are away from the standard of Christ... We become more aware of the abundant gift he gave for us to make us equal with him. Does that make sense? We have to understand how sinful we really are. Not today in newness of life because we're believers, but in our sin. How sinful is sin? It spans a gap that if you were to gaze deep into the horizon to the standard of God, you would realize to yourself, I'll never make it. What am I going to do? And then the Lord appears with, I don't know, some supercar or something. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> uh, let's move on uh, quickly to 9. 9 and 10. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the com uh, commandment came, sin became alive and I died. This commandment, which was the result of life, proved to result in death for me. Paul was saying, for I once was alive. He, in Galatians 3, says, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I am like the top level of all the Jewish believers. He used to teach other Jews how to be Jews. He's saying, I, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which means nothing to us, but is very important to the Jewish tradition. He, in essence, is saying, I have lived the legal life of holiness. I thought I was alive. But when the commandment came, we're all alive when we don't think we're, we're against the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I then died. Our nature is to cross the line. Our nature is to sin. No matter how much in control you think you are. I don't want to be a part of Christianity because I'm an independent American and I have control. No, you're just getting kicked in the head every day by sin. That's the bottom line. 
and we're struggling with it and we're calling it independence. No, you're not. You're just independent from the thing that's helping you. You can stand in a burning fire, in a burning house all day long and be independent from firefighters. Have at it. But we are dead because this thing, this fire around us, this sin in us and through us is alive in us. We become slaves to sin. And the commandment, which was to result in life, again, this, this, the law is good, proved to result in death for me. But what happened when this thing that was supposed to provide life, I took that thing that was good and I manipulated it and it became sin again. There was nothing that could help me. Paul had the law in his hands. He had the law in his mind and he believed that all that he was doing was good. But he didn't have it in his heart. And it was killing him. If you could live by the law, it would have been life to you, but instead it has been death to us all. I explain this by saying, if you think about a chasm like the Grand Canyon, the law is a map that leads you to one side of the canyon, but only rest and peace is on the other side of the canyon. Let's pretend that there's, I don't know, an army chasing you or something. You follow the map in a big hurry, trying to get to safety, and you get to the edge of the cliff, and there is nothing there to help you, so you use the map as a bridge. The map is not a bad thing, it's just not a bridge. It could not lead us to righteousness. Who is the bridge? The Lord, who made a way where there was no way before. The law was to point us to our sin, so that we would become aware of how far the chasm is away from us. The law, it doesn't get, the law isn't evil. It's just not a bridge. Verses 11 and 12. I know we're tired, guys. It's a million degrees in here. You should try being me. Just stick with me for a few more minutes, okay? For sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is, is righteous and good. I say this every week, but this is becoming one of my favorite scriptures. Because if you look at it, it's, it's simply the gospel. Just for a second, pay attention to this. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived, and through it killed me. Do you remember the garden and the serpent? Let's say, for the serpent, who's called sin, took an opportunity through the commandment that God gave not to eat of the tree, and he deceived us by saying, did God really say you couldn't eat from that tree? And what happened as a result of that of believing that deception? We died. That is our, that is our very nature. He killed me, me meaning mankind. So the law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteousness is good. When I pray to God, I, I try to share with him who I believe him to be. And these are the words that I use. Holy and righteous and good. We have been deceived by the devil, and it has resulted in death. But the law has come, something that could fulfill this for us. And he is righteous and holy and good. Where the first law failed, the second jumps, the new law succeeded for us. When we were deceived by the enemy, the first attempt didn't work, but the second one does. The second is a very big thing to understand in the scripture, and it's, it's, it's really revolutionary for me. The concept of the devil and how he works has been the same since the beginning of time. It's in two ways. The first, he lies. He deceives you. The second, he accuses you of missing the law. He deceives you. Did God really say that he was going to do that? Did God, did, did God really tell you he wants your freedom? Or if you don't think you've been deceived, you're the most deceived of all. 
And as a result of that, once you become aware that you have made a mistake, that you've sinned against God, he points his finger at you and he says, I told you, you are a sinner. We start to believe what the devil believes about us. And then what happens? We begin to say the things that the devil says about us. Well, that's just the way I am. That's just the way that I am. I have a mental illness. That's just the way that I am. Or I have irritability and that's just the way that I am. And then we start to do what the enemy would do to us. This isn't hocus pocus. This isn't some fantastic notion. This is reality. And if the devil gets his way throughout all of your life, what happens? You begin to take the very action that he would want to take against you. The devil came to steal, kill, and destroy. That you would take your own life. That you would degrade your own body in some way. What a feather in the cap of the devil for you to treat yourself like he would treat you. And he doesn't have to do anything but point his finger. Don't be deceived. The way we're not deceived is because there is no law against us. He can point at me all day long and say, you've broke the law. And I can say, I have, but he didn't. And I'm in him. I'm no longer subject to that law, Jack. I'm not from around here. The laws of this reality don't bother me anymore because I am a heavenly creature, the word says. And I believe in that by faith. I don't have to pay attention to the laws in Japan. You know why? Because I'm not there. Point your finger all you want. But I haven't broken anything under the jurisdiction that I am. And the jurisdiction that I'm under is King Jesus. Okay, last scripture. Therefore, it's a summarization. He is summarizing the very point he was trying to make. And it is this. Paul is saying to the Jews, the law is not bad. But just obeying the 316 statues of the Jewish law does not make you righteous in God's eyes. It's not what it was designed to do. God gave the law so we would be aware of how sinful we are and how much we need a Savior. How would we ever know how far off we were unless the law pointed us to the standard? Paul is setting us up, setting the, the people in this church up and in Rome to say, well, if the law doesn't work, what do we do? And the answer is, by faith, you're saved. The very statement he's made over and over again. Okay, do we feel like we have an understanding? When I was researching the scripture and studying it throughout the week, a question came to mind. How the heck did the Jews get this way? They've been studying this scripture for thousands of years. It is said that you could just stab a knife into the first five books of the Bible, open the page to where the blade tip ended, recite the word, and a Jewish Pharisee could just start reciting the scripture Therefore, They knew it inside and out. How do you miss this when you're studying it every day? I'm a coach, and sometimes I think that. Like, how on earth did you think that was what I wanted you to do? We do this every day. The truth is, they made an assumption. They assumed that a good teacher had the right understanding and that they would just trust what somebody else said. The truth is, when we don't think there's anything for, to look for, we stop looking altogether. The truth is, assumptions make us poor listeners and poor learners. We think we've got the government sized up, or our history sized up, or Christians sized up, or Democrats sized up, and we make assumptions about them based on our personal reality, newsflash. What you think you know may not be a fact. Let me tell you, church, if you make an assumption about God, you better be right. Because one day, whether you like it or not, we will stand before him. And you may not think that's, that, that may never even happen. I'm not going to stand before God because there is no God. Huh? You, 
You're betting your life on it, man. This, this picture, let's just go on, is a picture of assumption. The cop in this picture, his name is Richard. He was a cop in Birmingham for 27 years. His dog's name is Leo. He's a part of the canine unit there. Richard never spoke about this picture because he was labeled a racist for the rest of his life. Received death threats. He maintained his position as a police officer. Moved his wife out of town. After his passing, his wife and a number of his friends were asked about this picture where they said, in fact, he was an outcast from the police officers because he was not a supremacist at all. He called racist wackos. He's photographed in multiple pictures helping black students get integrated into white schools. He was called there because Chief O'Connor asked him to come with the dogs. He was standing away from the crowd when a young boy ran across the street and the dog leapt. The young boys uh, in this picture's name is Walter Gatston. Walter Gatston was missing school that day because he heard about a man named Martin Luther King who was going to be in town. He was cutting in class and running across the park, saw the commotion in the crowd, figured that he would dodge the crowd and see from an outside perspective if he could catch a glimpse of the great Martin Luther King. When he was jotting across the, the street away from the crowd, he ran into a dog who got overstimulated and leapt at him. And in that moment, the picture was taken and the civil rights movement, its anthem, was born. We assumed that he was a racist. We assumed that Walter was a member of the civil rights action. When quoted later, he said, I don't know why they used that picture. I was never a part of the civil rights movement. In fact, I didn't really believe in it. I was just trying to go to school so I could get to college. He was walking across the street. And we assumed this is the staple picture of the civil rights movement. And in reality, all that it is, is a picture of confusion. People sent death threats to this white man and exalted this black man for something that neither of them were ever really a part of. You may say to yourself, what does this white guy in Fort Collins know about a picture that was taken 54 years ago? That's the problem with assumptions. They seed into us, and when the truth comes and hits us in the face, we doubt. The Jews read the scripture every day for their entire life, and when Jesus walked right in front of their face, they couldn't see him for who he was. I'm not telling you to question everything all the time. I'm telling you to be careful with your assumptions. This is not about the civil rights movement. This is not about this picture. This is not about the law. This sermon is about what you believe and why. And it's an important decision to make. I want to make one more set of scripture here. We're going to go super fast. Let's go to the next one. The parable of the talents, I'm going to summarize for the lack of time, uh, is a parable that Jesus gives in chapter 25 of the book of Matthew in verse 14. Essentially, he says that he has three slaves. He's going on a trip, and he gives each of them some money. The first two slaves go and invest the money and get a return on their investment. And when the, when the master returns, he gives them not only what he gave them, but more. And he says that they're blessed, and he gives them even more back. The third one, who received a smaller portion, comes to the Lord and says, that, or comes to the master and says this, and also the one who had received the one talent, which is money essentially, came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed, and I was afraid. 
this slave gets punished because of something he thought he knew for sure. How do we rectify this situation? How do we overcome being the weak slave or being a sumer when we look at a picture or being that of a Jewish custom? We have to know the truth. We have to trust that the Spirit of God can let me look at somebody and not make an assumption about them, but rather ask him what he says about that person and know that it's truth in faith. Now, you can continue to try it your way, but how's it going? You just measure it up. You can hear God for yourself. You don't need me or some pastor or some book or somebody else to tell you what to think. You can hear him personally. And the Lord who speaks no lie and always gives truth, if I'm listening to the same God you're listening to, the one and only true God who only shares truth, you and I begin to have the same thought about everything. And the people become unified in a community. And we begin to attack certain areas of the community and pray for certain things and see things the way God sees them. And all of a sudden, the truth is not just in heaven or in the Bible, but it's in the community. Because we didn't make an assumption. Instead, we asked the source. Does that make sense? This is how the church should be run. Maybe you could say this whole sermon like this. Last slide. We'll bring the worship team up. It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. You know, the interesting thing about this quote that I found so like, intriguing when I was studying it and why it matches so well with the sermon is that it is believed that, Tom, or that Mark Twain wrote this uh, passage right here. But in reality, Mark Twain never pinned anything like this. Tom Sawyer never said it. Huckleberry Finn never mentioned it. Somebody on the internet or some movie quoted Mark Twain saying this because it sounded like them. And we, believing the internet or that movie, made the assumption that it was true. And we accredited a very good quote to a man who has a bunch of good quotes all on his own. It doesn't take or add to the quote any more or less. It's just not true. But there are some things we know for sure that just ain't so. I would encourage you, the believer, as we get ready for our offering, to go to the Lord and ask him to reveal to you the assumptions he's, that you've made about yourself, about him, and about others. And that you would be willing to rectify them uh, with him. Does that make sense? Okay, we're going to get ready to take up our offering. You guys, come on up. Sorry, I know we went over there. I tried to go as fast as I could. Whew, I'm sweating. We're going to take up our offering here, and I pray that if you're, if you're new, if you're a visitor, um, you would take into account just what we shared here. Don't give out of obligation or compulsion. Don't give because you feel like it's necessary or you have to. Ask the Lord what, you, what He wants you to do, and if He says keep your money, then keep it. Obedience is greater than any sacrifice. If He says you to give the whole load, man, obey that too. <laughs> uh, let's pray together. Lord. We thank you so much for the, for, the, for the word of truth, for the body of Christ, and for the spirit in our heart. We ask that you speak clearly and boldly to those in the room today, not only about the giving, but about the every part of their life. We confess to you assumptions that we've made, and we return them back to you. We ask that you bless the offering this day. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. After the offering comes around, we're going to stand and worship again. And you can... Uh, worship the Lord, but I believe that there's a there's a word here for some of us here, and I need you to listen to this. Um, like I said all morning long, I believe that the Lord speaks to us. 
And uh, my brother Luke in the back, he believed it was he was praying about the service that he got a word for like somebody from from heaven. Really, we believe that. And it has to do with Hosea what? Amos. I'm sorry. Amos what? Amos chapter three. It's a good set of scripture. Essentially, the Lord is saying that He blessed you, and you wouldn't return. Then He like hammered on you and you wouldn't return. And that you're kind of saying, I believe in you when things are going the way I want them to go, but I don't believe in you when the things, even if they're good, don't go the way I want them to go. If you've been struggling with this concept of returning to God just as He is, because you think what's happened to you is His fault or whatever, but you feel like today, today is the day to just return. No stipulation, no contractual agreement, no understanding of the law, just a me and you returning together. If that is for you this morning, all I want you to do when the worship time comes, I just want you to come to the front of the room, bow down, and do your business with God. No one's going to mess with you, no one's going to pray, or no, we will leave you alone to do business with the Lord. Always, if the, if the altar needs to be open for you to come and pray or or offer something to the Lord in your own spiritual self, you can certainly come to the front and do that. Okay, let's stand and worship. God wants the truth for you. That's it. No assumptions, no more wondering. He wants to provide a place for you and I where we can go and get reality. And I think at the core of it all, that's all we want. We just want it to be real. think about all of those in the city who have to make up a fantasy in their life or or like get out of their own head because it is so hard or it is so painful. They've been so accused and so deceived. It's so, it's so painful that they think the only way to get out is to go deeper into the lie. The Lord says that the truth makes us free. And the reality is, if you're a believer in the room, you're carrying loads of it. My encouragement to you, just go hand it out, you know? To the destitute, to the poor, to the sick, to the rich, to the intelligent, we make assumptions about them all. I want nothing more than for them to see the truth and for them to be set free of accusation and deception. And there's only one way for that to come about. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul says to take every thought captive. And then he says in 2 Corinthians, I know only this, Christ and Him crucified. Let's begin with that truth and just build with there, shall we? I pray that you have such a blessed week that it turns into a testimony you must share with others. I pray that you have boldness that is brought upon you by the Holy Spirit that would allow you to share with the person you've known for years but never given the truth to. I pray that you would lead your life in such a way that it would no longer be a misconception like that picture. That there would be no mistake of who you are and who you serve. And I pray these things because of the Lord Jesus and His power in us.
Have a wonderful week. We'll see you outside in a few minutes, okay? Thanks a lot.